This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. The legal information presented on In Legal Terms is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and is not necessarily the opinion of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The information conveyed does not create any type of attorney-client relationship. Please consult an attorney provider before making any decisions about your specific legal questions. Welcome to In Legal Terms from MPB Think Radio, the show all about you and your rights. I'm Liz Gill with Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. Hello, Professor Gershon. Good morning, Liz. It's great to be here. Especially great to have Matthew Hall back on the show. You know, this show would not have existed uh, had Matthew not co-hosted it in those early days uh, when we did did the show from my office with a dedicated phone line to MPB. Uh, and the show has evolved a lot. But I tell you what, he made it uh, a great show, and I'm really happy to have him back and uh, really appreciate his expertise on what we're going to be talking about today. And Matthew, could you remind our, our listeners a little bit about your background? Good morning, Richard. Good morning. Good morning, Liz. Good morning. We're so glad you're with us. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. So I've been at the law school for 20 years. I teach criminal law and immigration law, and I've also taught over the years constitutional law and national security law. Before I came to the law school, I worked at the U.S. Department of Justice in D.C. and specialized in national security and counterterrorism law and immigration law there. And I'm really looking forward to talking about emergency powers today and especially looking forward to hearing questions that listeners might have. Well, it's such, a, it's such an important topic, and we really appreciate your, your uh, being here today, Matthew. And, you know, back in uh, 1905, in the case of Jacobson versus Massachusetts, the U.S. Supreme Court found that the police power of the states embraces reasonable regulations as will protect the public health and safety. And so what, what exactly are police powers? When I think of police, I think about, you know, the police who patrol the streets. What do we mean by police power? So I think the term police power probably confuses people. So that's a legal term that really just means that the states have broad powers to legislate and to conduct government for the public health, welfare, safety, and all of those general purposes. So whatever it is government is allowed to do, state governments are allowed to do it. And that's in contrast to the federal government. The federal government, although it might seem more powerful to us today, is actually a government of limited enumerated powers, only those powers granted to it in the Constitution or or implied by the existence of a national government. So the term police power just means that a state government has the full extent of governmental power. So, you know, we we think about our rights and our liberties and and are there special circumstances where the the state or or federal government can or where the state government can exercise its police power to restrict certain rights? I mean, does it can they just do it at any time or uh, do we need some kind of special set of circumstances like covid-19? Uh, for the state well, you brought up Jacobson v. Massachusetts. I was actually reading that case this morning, getting ready for the show. That case actually involved smallpox vaccinations. 
So we, we know that there are lots of people in the United States who either don't want their children vaccinated or oppose vaccinations as a whole. And in the Jacobson case, over 100 years ago, the Supreme Court said that states could, in order to protect public health and safety, require vaccinations. So that's an example, I think, of exactly what you were proposing, Richard. There are lots of instances in which state governments use their powers to protect public health and safety, even though some segment of the community, some group of people might disagree about the necessity of that action. Well, I think you know a little bit like I, I, I think about the stop signs in my neighborhood that uh, I think one of them is actually must be broken because I don't really see my neighbors stopping there very often. But, you know, it's, I mean, it's a, I mean it, a stop sign is really kind of an exercise of, of uh, power by the state to restrict liberty in some respects for, for public safety. And I, I don't think people have a problem with that so much. But it's interesting that, you know, we're going to be talking about some specific things that I think we hopefully will get some calls about. Um, now, so if a state wants to exercise its police power, are there certain things it has to do, certain proclamations it has to make? Or, you know, or, or you know, how does it let the public know it's doing that? So lots of times when the state exercises its general power, there's nothing controversial about it whatsoever. The state legislature passes a statute enacting, like, like you said, traffic regulations, and the governor signs the statute, and then some executive branch agency, some state agency, puts up road signs. And so there's nothing controversial about it. If a citizen were to challenge a statute like that, the, the legal analysis is under a framework called tiers of scrutiny. And so the tier of scrutiny for just a normal statute, like a traffic regulation, would be what's called rational basis review. And as long as the state had a legitimate reason for the statute, and as long as the statute didn't act arbitrarily or capriciously, it would be valid. It would pass constitutional muster. The only time that, the, that our analysis gets complicated is if a state statute, if a state's exercise of its governmental power tramples on or limits a, a constitutional right, free expression or free exercise of religion or reproductive rights, for example. And, and then the tier of scrutiny would be what we call strict scrutiny. And, and the state would have to demonstrate a compelling state interest. It would have to demonstrate that the statute or, or regulation was narrowly tailored, no more intrusive upon rights than necessary for the given situation. We are talking today with Professor Richard Gershon and Professor Matthew Hall about what the government can and can't do during a health emergency. Professor Hall, does the president or a governor have to declare that it's an emergency? Does that give um, the governments a little extra leeway on restrictions that they can put out? That's a great question, Liz. Thank you. So uh, under state law, that's the normal process. So in Mississippi, the, there's an emergency power statute. If, if anybody wants to look it up, it's 33-15-11. And the process of exercising emergency power begins, like you said, with the governor declaring an emergency. 
And people are, are going to be blown away by the extent of powers this gives a governor. I mean, our current debate, really, the governors and the president have only used a small fraction of the powers they have under emergency statutes. In Mississippi, like in about 40 other states, the declaration of emergency gives the governor the authority to modify all statutes and regulations of the state. So the governor can, as Governor Reeves did, issue an emergency declaration basically laying out here are the laws, here are the rules for the duration of this emergency. Well, this is it's so it's so fascinating, Matthew. And I, I actually uh, have pulled up that statute since uh, I thank you for uh, naming it, because I'm, I'm looking through it now and I'm really kind of amazed. But I guess it's necessary, you know, when you've got, uh, you know, millions of people in our state. And then, you know, you think about some bigger states to, to have some way to protect people in emergency situations. Um, now, it, I, 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 I'm just curious. I mean, is there I noticed that uh, Governor Reeves. Uh, put a limitation on the time, for, for example, for the safer at home order. Is that required? Do they have to put a limitation on time? I, I think that's an important part of what, what it means to declare an emergency. We would be suspicious as citizens of any exercise of tremendous power by a governor or by the president. If, if the governor said it's an emergency, but it had no time limit, you'd look at the governor and you'd say, you're lying. That's, that's, it was pretext for you to call it an emergency. You're just trying to become a, a tyrant. But, but when a governor says, here's an order that's in place for two weeks, or here's an order that's in place for 30 days, I think that reassures us that the governor legitimately exercises emergency power by time limiting it. It's clear that whatever intrusion on our normal rights and on our normal statutory duties, that whatever intrusion is time limited and therefore really is an emergency. Well, we have a couple of phone calls, uh, folks who have been interested in this topic. Let's go to Becky in Fulton. Becky, thank you so much for being part of In Legal Terms. What's your comment or question? I have a comment and a question. The first is, uh, I just want to comment that I'm so glad that, that Mississippi has such strict vaccination laws in place that that help the public health, you know, in our communities. And the, the comment was that I, I'm hoping that, that people will, I mean, the whole thing about the mask, about wearing a mask, um, I'm seeing a lot of people that are not wearing masks. And when this first started, I had a lot of people, I mean, I had, a, I'm sorry, I had a person comment that, that that this was not communist China and that we didn't need to be, you know, that we didn't need to be wearing masks. Well, my my issue is, okay, if you, if you don't want to wear a mask, just stay home. If you're in a hospital, you're not allowed to go into a hospital room without having gloves and a mask on. Why, you know, it, because this, this is so contagious, it's, I mean, it's scary to me how, I mean, it, the COVID cases may be plateauing in other parts of the state, but there are, the case, the, the case numbers on the rise here, and it, it's worrisome. It really is worrisome. Becky, thank you so much for your comments about that. Uh, Professor Hall, Professor Gershon, do you have any comments about what Becky said? 
I'm, I'm really glad Becky called in and raised those points. Uh, starting with the vaccination thought, I think Mississippi is one of the states in the country with the strongest, most universal vaccination statutes. And I think that really helps to frame the debate. It, it is not legally controversial. It is well-established law that Mississippi can require vaccinations. We, we were talking earlier about a Supreme Court case that's over 100 years old. And so if the state can require vaccinations, requiring masks seems like a very small intrusion. That, that's a minimal intrusion compared to requiring vaccinations. And, and people may misunderstand what the masks are. The masks aren't to protect you from getting the disease. The masks are to protect other people from you spreading the disease because you might be an asymptomatic carrier of COVID. And so requiring masks is not about protecting you. You, you could decide you want to take all sorts of risks and that you're not injuring anyone but yourself. So requiring masks is really about protecting other people around you. And I think people might not understand that, that aspect of it. We're going to continue our discussion with Professor Matthew Hall and Professor Richard Gershon about the balance between civil liberties and public safety in a time of crisis. Now, where can you find an assortment of COVID information in one place? I'll tell you next. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. This is In Legal Terms. Now, not everyone has a chance to listen to our whole show live. So if you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. It's also available on the MPB Public Media app, as are all our local shows. I'm Liz Gill, here with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. MPB News Department has accumulated Mississippi Department of Health, uh, Governor's Press Conferences, Center for Disease Control Information, and news stories all on one website. It's mpbonline.org slash coronavirus. Or if you just go to mpbonline.org, there's a huge banner across the top of the screen, and you can just click on that. This morning, we are talking with Professor Matthew Hall, Former host of uh, In Legal Terms, we're talking about the balance between civil liberty and public safety in a time of crisis. We have a phone call. Let's go to Dan, who's called in from Meridian. Dan, thank you so much for hanging on. And uh, what's your comment or question for In Legal Terms? Mm. Uh, yes, good morning. And uh, thank you for taking my call. And uh, thank you to Professor Hall and Ger- uh, Professor Gershman for providing such a uh, wonderful venue for 
uh, information uh, for the general public. Um, I have a question, uh, and to follow up with uh, what uh, you gentlemen were talking about earlier about vaccines. Uh, obviously, these are difficult times, and we in a society are trying to do our best to basically wait until there is a vaccine that, that hopefully is in the horizon within the next year. Um, and I think in general, the, the population as a whole, uh, not only in our country, but throughout the world, will welcome that. But we know that there is a segment in our population that, for whatever complex reasons, they, they will refuse to take this vaccine uh, without getting into details of the reason why or, uh, they will not take it. There are some who I have a feeling that will... Uh, will will refuse. And so I guess my question is, is that uh, based on the current law, uh, what legal, uh, uh, and without a lack of a better word, is there any stronghold convincing technique or avenues that the, that our government can take? Uh, I don't want to use force, but what can we do about those segment of population that, that will refuse to take the vaccine? And um, thank you for taking my call. Matthew, you want to take that one? Or? Sure. I, I, Dan asks a great question about vaccines. And, and I think that's one of the classic things lawyers would say about this is we have 50 different states to experiment on how to approach this question. So we may have a state like Mississippi that will have our normal universal vaccine requirement. And, and we might require every child or even every child and adult to get a particular vaccine. But another state might take a very different approach. Another state might decide to allow exemptions for people who, for religious reasons, don't believe in medical intervention. And a third state might take an even different approach and might allow people to opt out of a vaccine requirement for any reason at all. So those are all legitimate public policy choices. And the fact that it's constitutional for one state to require vaccines across the board doesn't mean that, that any state has to do that. So I, I would expect to see a variety of different approaches around the country. And if you have a state in which 99% of the population voluntarily takes the vaccine, that does mean that that state has, as a public health choice, could, it could let a small group of people not take the vaccine and sort of be free riders off of everyone else. So, so again, I, I think we'd see experimentation around the country. And Matthew, could uh, employers, for example, say, hey, you know, you're not going to work at my meatpacking plant unless you can show that you've been vaccinated. So, I mean, employers actually have a role to play in all this as well. And so do schools, as you mentioned, it could be that every child has to present a vaccination certificate to, to go to school. And we, we have that. So, um, it, you know, is that is that effective as well? Oh, absolutely. So in the same way that we can have states experimenting within one state, we, we could have different entities having different rules. So, so, Richard, like you said, we could have an employer saying to work here, you need a vaccination. We could have a university saying because we have students coming here from all across the country and all across the globe, every student here needs a vaccination. And, and then we could have other places that could take a more lenient approach. And I, I think that's the wisdom of our democratic federal system is that it allows that kind of experimentation. 
You know, getting back to the, the you know, you, you raised such a great point about the mask and about how they are really about the health of others. And, I mean, we, we have restrictions like that that have come in certainly during my lifetime with smoking. You know, a lot of people say that in some ways uh, spreading COVID uh, it, or coronavirus similar to secondhand smoke uh, that, you know, we don't let people smoke in, in public places anymore because because of the health issues. I mean, I, I think it is it similar in a lot of ways. It is, Richard. And I was thinking about this on a, a big picture level. So when I was a kid, I was a huge World War II history buff. And when I got interested in World War II as a as a 10 year old, I was interested in the weapons and the battles. And my mom, who lived through the war, sat me down and said, look, if you're going to study this, you need to know about more than the, the, the tanks and the airplanes. She said, you need to know what it was like for people to live through the war. And she brought out from her memory trunk a, a package of, of ration books. The, the United States, shortly after we declared war, went on a rationing system, and we allowed each person in the country to buy only a limited amount of sugar and butter and milk and then eventually gasoline and other products. And so she had kept the rationing coupons that her family used. And that just frames the debate. I mean, the debate that we're having in the United States right now about COVID involves relatively mild use of governmental power. I mean, we're talking about, in general, asking some businesses to close and people to stay home with relatively little enforcement and few penalties, compared to in World War II, where you could not buy milk or sugar without a rationing coupon. And the penalties for cheating, a rationing, using someone else's coupons were, were enormous. So we're really sort of in the middle of the spectrum in terms of exercise of governmental power. And you're right, there are analogies like limitations on smoking that, that are m much more apropos for what's going on today than really even describing this as the exercise of emergency power that, that would after all allow, I mean, if we were really in an emergency, the government could draft people and force people to serve in the military and, and actually literally face death rather than, uh, than the sort of relatively mild regulations we see today. And Liz, I know you want uh, to give the number so that we can make sure that callers have a chance to, uh, to weigh in. We do. If you have an a comment to share or you have a question about what the government can and can't do during a health emergency, please give us a call, 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. And our email address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. Matthew, I'm so happy you mentioned uh, World War II because I think, you know, for for this generation, for, for you know, people my age, certainly, who did not live through World War II, this is, uh, you know, kind of our, our moment. And yet you hear about uh, people in London, for example, that had to uh, go into shelters 58 nights in a row as they were being bombed every day, every evening. Um, and, you know, in comparison, we, we do have to keep it in comparison that we're being asked to stay home. With that in mind, I mean, don't people have a right to, to travel? Isn't that one of the the constitutional rights that we have in this country. And so what, how can the government impose quarantine or stay at home restrictions? 
So, yes, Richard, people have a, a right to travel. That's one of our privileges and immunities. I think even more dramatically, people have a First Amendment freedom of association, which means that it, that's not just a right to travel. That's freedom to spend time with other people as you choose. We have under the First Amendment the right to peaceably assemble. So we have a tremendous number of liberties granted in the Constitution. But at the same time, the power of quarantine is one of the oldest powers of government, predating the Constitution. G governments throughout European and colonial history exercised the power of quarantine. So that is, I think, sort of engrafted historically on the Constitution. If people want to look at the Mississippi statute, the Mississippi statute on quarantine is Mississippi Code Section 41-23-5, and it grants the State Department of Health broad authority to control epidemics and infectious disease and to use both isolation and quarantine to limit the spread of disease. And I think this would all be really different if we were, we were dealing with a disease like smallpox where we have really good testing available for smallpox. We would be isolating people who had it and quarantine ex exposed people in a much more deliberate way. And one of the big challenges with COVID is that we are just on the beginning of the curve of building enough testing capacity to use our isolation and quarantine powers in a, a more surgical fashion. R right now we're having to use them as a blunt instrument against sort of everybody because we don't have the testing capacity to use them in a more precise fashion. James, Kent, hang on. We'll take your calls when we come back from this break. We're talking with Professor Matthew Hall about what the government can and can't do during a health emergency. And if you didn't get some of these code numbers from the Constitution and such, it'll all be on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org, sometime this afternoon. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. I'm Allison Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Professor Richard Gershon is our expert host. I'm Liz Gill. Hey, we hope that you'll subscribe to our podcast. There's lots of different podcasting platforms. I happen to use Podcast Addict on my Android phone. I downloaded it to my phone. I touched the plus, and that takes me to a page where you can either search or browse for podcasts. But I typed in in legal terms in the search area. It brings up our show. You can touch the photo and then subscribe, and I can be notified when any new episodes are loaded up. 
this morning. We are talking about the balance between civil liberty and public safety in time of crisis. Our guest is Professor Matthew Hall from the University of Mississippi School of Law and a former host of In Legal Terms. We've got a couple of phone calls. We've got an email to get to. So first, we're going to go to the phones. Kent has called in from Brandon. Kent, thank you so much for being part of In Legal Terms. What's your comment or question? Thank you. Can you hear me all right? Yes, we can. Very good. I'm on my car, so I just wanted to check. I think the problem that many of these anti-vaxxers have is that they have not lived through something like a measles epidemic or a mumps epidemic. I'm 70. I've had, you know, chicken box, both types of measles, etc. Luckily, I my mumps were... Anyway, if a parent chooses not to be inoculated, that is their choice. But I don't think any parent or any person has the right to say to their 10, 11-year-old son, I don't care if you get the mumps that are sterilized. I'm not going to get you vaccinated. I just don't think they have. that right. Thank you. Kent, we appreciate you calling in with your comment. Uh, Lots more phone calls to go to. Let's go to James in Vicksburg. James, thank you for being part of In Legal Terms today. What's your comment or question? Well, y'all talking about the inoculation and all, uh, I'm I'm one of those, I guess, that doesn't agree with it. For For this case, we're talking about something that's similar to the flu what's wrong with me getting it and going ahead going through the course of it then building up an immunity to it and for those people out there that are throwing your mask away don't throw them on the ground please if you have that stuff the cleanup crew coming behind you cleaning up your mess is subject to contract it We're trying to get the cases down, not increase the cases. James, we appreciate you calling in with your comments. Thank you. Let's go to Monica, who has called in from uh, Bentonia. Monica, thank you so much for being part of our show today. What's your comment or question for in legal terms? Um, It's not about vaccination. It's about unemployment insurance. Is that okay? Uh, we'll we'll take that if we can. Go ahead. All right. At the governor's press conference a few days ago, he uh, was asked a question that he misunderstood or he didn't hear the rest of it. And the question was, what if your employer calls you back to work, but you, be, due to the virus, there is someone at home that you have to care for? Uh will you be denied unemployment insurance? And the governor said you must, he basically said you must go back to work if you're called. He, he didn't get the part about having to care for someone at home. I heard that too, Monica, and the, the uh, professors, um, maybe if any, either of them are up on uh, the CARES Act, but uh, I know the... What is the the family Families leave? First. Right. Families, families First actually does protect 
that person. If you have somebody to care for at home who is ill, then you are also protected. Uh, and that was actually an act that came in before the CARES Act, so it's actually a, a different act. And uh, Stephanie Showalter Ott did a great job uh, on legal terms. I think it was uh, two weeks ago. Uh, and so that podcast really talks about some of those uh, benefits as well. So, yeah, Monica, there's a certain number of days that even if you don't have sick leave from your employer, if you are employed, um, you can take leave uh, to care for a, a COVID victim if you need to. Okay. All right. Thanks. Thank you, Monica. Let's go to uh, one more call, and then we'll do an email. This is David, who has called in from Memphis. David, thank you so much for being a part of In Legal Terms. What's your comment or question? Yeah, first of all, I'd like to express my appreciation to both of the uh, uh, speakers today who uh, I'm sure uh, were part of my daughter's successful completion and graduation from the Old Miss School of Law this week. Yay! Congratulations. So uh, I, this may be germane to the conversation, but I deal in emergency management for a, a large business. And uh, um, could you speak to Title 10 in disasters and how that uh, – that the interaction between the state and the federal government for those sorts of uh, events, similar to, to uh, Katrina. Well, let's see. We have to check that one out. I'm not an expert on Title Ten and disasters. Maybe you, maybe our our, uh, our caller can give us a little more background on that. Well, just very quickly and briefly, it's the, the when the state during a, a, an event similar to Katrina exhausts all of its resources. Um, makes a formal request to the president of, and federal government, of course, uh, for assistance. Uh, and that's where FEMA gets involved. But the president uh, uh, designates a dual status commander. And usually it's a, a flag officer that's in the National Guard of the state, let's say the Mississippi uh, National Guard. And that uh, dual status commander would report to both kind of a dual relationship to the governor, but also the president, um, which gives them tremendous authority to pull resources in to assist the state in a uh, in an event of that nature. But then there's also the uh, posse comitatus of the limitations of the military in terms of police forces. So perhaps you can talk about the policing subject, which you did earlier in the in the in the call uh, with regard to the military's uh, uh, National Guard's ability to assist law enforcement in that area. What? That's a great call, David. By the way, congratulations on uh, on your child's graduating from the law school. Uh, that's a big accomplishment. And maybe we should have you on the show to talk about uh, national disaster health because that, that's a really important topic. Um, Matthew, do you know about how the military's inter- intervention would, would play into this? A little bit. So, and thank you, David, for the call. D- depending on how you count, there are 130-some-odd different statutes that the president can use as part of the president's emergency powers. So it's this sort of crazy patchwork quilt. And some of them give the president significant power, and some of them allow the president to suspend other statutes, and some create cooperation mechanisms. And and David's describing, with regard to the use of the National Guard and active duty military, 
two statutes that both give the president tremendous power and create these mechanisms for cooperation and coordination. So the federal government can show up in a disaster zone and instead of having the sort of chaotic and conflicting responses we've heard about during the COVID pandemic, the federal government could show up and, and in effect direct all of the different emergency actors in a concerted, organized response. If the governor calls up the National Guard, and I think that's Title 32, that's relatively uncontroversial. But if the president tries to call up active duty federal military personnel, as David says, that violates what's called the Posse Comitatus Act that prohibits the use of the federal military for domestic law enforcement and domestic purposes generally. But one of the president's emergency powers allows the president to suspend Posse Comitatus without declaring martial law. So that's the normal process in the declaration of emergency, is, is the president can declare an emergency, federalize the National Guard, or, or deploy active duty military personnel to assist with the disaster or emergency without de violating posse comitatus. And, and as with all of these federal statutes, you get into the weeds incredibly quickly. Um, so there, there's no sort of, like at the state level, no just general power for the president to do emergency management. It's all, it's all the use of these 132 specific statutory schemes. David, thank you so much for calling in. Professor Gershon, we had talked about maybe having a, a legal show. We'll have to have posse comitatus as uh, learning our, our, our legal Latin. But uh, if you want to know about some of the um, past in legal terms shows that we've done, go ahead and look at our webpage in legalterms.mpbonline.org. We'll tell you some of the highlights of the lately the COVID shows that we've been doing. Next, this is In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. Thank you for being part of In Legal Terms. If you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. It's also available on the MPB Public Media app, as are all our local shows. I'm Liz Gill here with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. Our guest today is Professor Matthew Hall. We have been talking about the balance between civil liberty and public safety in the time of crisis. But if you're interested in some of the other in legal terms that we've been doing lately, Last week, we had we talked about our legal system during this uh, coronavirus time. We talked about um, 
COVID-19 legislation, national legislation on August, I'm sorry, April 28th. We talked about housing in Mississippi on April 21st. We talked about intellectual property with a few being creative during the pandemic on April 14th. We've talked about the medical directives that um, people may want to get their affairs in order. And that was on March 31st. We also talked about protection orders, which unfortunately there's quite a bit of uh, domestic violence going on right now. That was on March 24th. And also we had a repeat of our census show. Don't forget, everyone still needs to fill out the 2020 census. We did a repeat of that on April 7th. We have an email. Uh, Professor Hall, Craig sent in, is someone in public without a mask, not reckless endangerment or even assault if they know they have the virus? So that's a great email from Craig. I think that in general, I don't know that we get a very clear answer. So if someone knows they have the virus, I think a prosecutor could argue that they are intentionally risking other people's health by not wearing a mask. But we get a really concrete answer. If somebody has a virus and we've had an order from a public health officer or some other municipal officer, if they, if we got a specific isolation order saying you need to stay at home or you need to wear a mask and somebody violates that. In Mississippi, that's a felony publish- punishable by up to five years in prison. In a lot of states, violating a public health order is just a misdemeanor, and it's just a misdemeanor under federal law. But under Mississippi Code, Section 4123-1 and-2, violating an order if you actually have COVID or if you're a causal agent, meaning you're a non-symptomatic carrier, if you actually violate a specific order about you, it's a felony. So it was a great email from Craig. All right. We've got William, Audra, and Becky that we're going to try to get to today. Let's go to William, who's called in from Starkville. Thank you for being part of In Legal Terms. William, go ahead. Uh, I'd, I'd just like to take uh, this moment here to, to point out a weakness that I think creates some of these uh, difficulties and uninformed uh, people, uh, un- uninformed reactions and, and questions that, that uh, seem so obvious to somebody who's well-educated, and that is that, that our education system in this country, I think, is terribly weak, public education. I don't mean advanced education and research. But we rank somewhere like 25th in the world uh, when we should be in the top five. And the fact that our that our students, our kids, uh, our children aren't informed and advised of all of these, uh, the history of of, uh, of resistance and, and pasture and and all of the great uh, uh, scientists of the eight, uh, 19th, 18th and 19th century, is a weakness. And I think that uh, if we were able to solve the education problem and and dedicate. Uh, 
the top I- I instructors to our, our school system that would alleviate a lot of these sorts of, of difficulties that we occur now. Thank you. Thank you, William. We appreciate you calling in with your comment. Let's now go to Audra, who's called in from Pontotoc. Audra, thanks for being part of In Legal Terms. What's your comment or question? Hi. Um, hi, Professor Gershon and Hall. Um, you know me. Of course. Um, first off, I just want to say to William's comment, if kids would pay attention in their civics and government classes, this would be a lot easier for all of this. Um, and you were talking about the rights earlier, Professor Hall, and I completely agree with that. But we also have responsibilities. And I think people are losing sight of the fact that it's our responsibility to do all we can to prevent the spread of this disease. And so what if you're uncomfortable wearing a mask or wearing gloves or staying home? You're bored. That's your problem. Stay at home. If all we have to do to do our part in this is to stay home, stay home. My parents have talked about seeing people who are quarantined. We were talking earlier about we're having to do this like a blunt force instrument. But um, they talked about seeing people who had um, polio who were quarantined. We have so many things that we don't know about this coronavirus, the COVID-19. We don't know. It's asymptomatic symptoms, different symptoms, atypical, blah, blah, blah. The economy is not as important as what, what good is it if we have a good economy if everybody's dead. So thank you so much for taking the time to do this show. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Bye. Thank you, Audra. We appreciate you calling in. We have uh, two minutes left, guys. Well, I thought, do we have any more? I thought we had another caller. I'm no, sorry. No, just now we're, we're, we're what, uh, how do we want to, what do we want to end uh, with our last thoughts on this topic? I'd like to jump in and say there has been a really interesting debate about free exercise and about church meetings. And I think here, this is a place where we really see some limits on emergency powers. So courts across the country have, in general, upheld governor's powers to ban live, in-person church meetings. But we've seen some disagreement about drive-in church meetings. And I think the logic there has been that when we have a ban on in-person meetings, that's a law of general applicability. We're treating churches like other large gatherings. But where, we, where governors have tried to ban drive-in church services, the argument has been, but you let people drive in their cars to go pick up food from curbside food delivery. And so there we see courts looking at that and saying, that doesn't seem complete necessary in the same way as banning in-person services in the sanctuary of a church. So courts have really been willing to step in and limit the governor's use of emergency powers. So, so we see that even emergency powers are not unlimited and that courts are going to make sure that our rights are protected. Matthew, that's, a, that's such a great point. And, uh, you know, uh, the, the one thing, though, I would, I would say to that is we still have, we do have Zoom and we have uh, radio broadcasts and TV broadcasts. So there are ways for people to exercise their religion without actually being in the building as well. Yes. So courts that have upheld the bans on in-person services have said that those alternatives are incredibly important to analyzing whether or not the emergency decrees are permissible. 
And aren't we blessed to be in a time where many people have the Internet? And I certainly this has shown uh, how detrimental it is to individuals who are not lucky enough to be connected to the world through the, the Internet. Professor Matthew Hall, thank you so much for giving us your time this hour. Thank you, Liz. Thank you, Richard. Great to be here. Great to have you. That's going to wrap us up for In Legal Terms. We thank Michelle McAdoo and Jay White for coming in to help. We're all socially distant here, but they're helping put on our show. So for Professor Richard Gershon, who hosts from the University of Mississippi School of Law, I'm Liz Gill. Hope you join us next Tuesday for In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.